Well, we're going through the book of Luke together. And today, halfway through chapter 6, you're going to see the second sermon of Jesus that Luke chose to record that is directed to his disciples. He's speaking it to his disciples, but in front of a large crowd. It's also an example of how Jesus would preach the same sermon more than once. Because even though it's a much shorter version, there are great similarities between the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and this sermon that Jesus preaches in Luke chapter 6. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. And you follow along as I begin reading in verse 17. Luke chapter 6 verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, what you need to understand is that Jesus has just chosen his 12 disciples. You can see this in verses 12 to 16, just prior to the passage that we read. He's just chosen his 12 disciples. And so it makes sense that he's going to do some basic boot camp training now before he sends them out. But he does it in front of a large crowd. Because he wants to clarify Not just for the disciples, but for all these crowds that keep showing up. What the kingdom of God is really about. Because I hope you realize Jesus was not interested like our day. Our day, it's all about followers and likes. Jesus was not interested in being a celebrity that just had a lot of followers. He came to be a savior. And so you'll find him regularly actually saying things that would thin out the crowd and clarify who he was and what he'd come to do. That is what he's doing in this sermon today. You see, number one, Jesus came to proclaim. 
a radically different kind of kingdom than most people are looking for. He's not offering what people want. You find that repeatedly in the Gospels. He's not saying or offering or doing what they actually want most. You'll see as we head on into the book of Luke, as we keep going through the book of Luke, you'll see that he speaks about this radical kingdom 55 times. You'll find Jesus bringing up the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, 55 times. And so it would be great for us on the front end of this gospel of Luke. If he's going to keep talking about the kingdom of God, we need to understand what's he talking about? What is the kingdom of God? Well, I think the kingdom of God can be understood best when you think about it in terms of what happens when somebody new, this has just happened in America, when somebody new comes into office or a position of power, right? It doesn't matter whether it's a president, king, governor, or CEO. When that person comes into power, they bring with them a whole new administration. A whole new administration. In other words, they bring with them a new set of priorities, policies, as well as strategies for getting it all done. And so stay with me. Jesus did not come. To be a good teacher. He did not come to feed the hungry. He did not come to heal the sick. And he certainly did not come to wander around Palestine trying to figure out who he was. He knew who he was. And he knew why he had come into our world. He came as the ultimate king who's been given all authority and power to establish a new administration that he calls the kingdom of God. And he wants us to know that the effects of this kingdom are more comprehensive, far-reaching, and radical than you could ever Imagine. It's not, I hope you understand as you read the Gospels, it's not the kingdom of God is going to come. When he was here in flesh, he said, the kingdom of God is here now. It's not fully consummated, but it's here. He kicked it off when he came the first time. It's here. The kingdom of God is here. He came as the ultimate king to establish a new administration that has Ways of thinking that are more comprehensive, far-reaching, and radical than what we could imagine. And so here's what I want to dig into both this week and next week. We're going to pick up and dig into the same passage next week. Let's answer this question. All right, if the kingdom of God is here, and that means God, by his spirit, is drawing people into this kingdom, what do kingdom people look like, and how do they live? What do kingdom people look like and how do they live? Well, he tells us, number two, kingdom people prize what the world would despise. Kingdom people prize what the world would despise. Michael Wilcox, in his excellent commentary on this passage, says this, and I quote, In the life of God's people will be seen first of all. A remarkable reversal of values. 
they will prize what the world calls pitiable. And they will suspect what the world thinks is desirable. Now listen, that right there is a good litmus test for you to think about, my friend. That's something worth thinking about. Kingdom people will prize what the world calls pitiable. And they will suspect. They'll be suspicious. They'll pump the brakes. They'll say, wait a minute. About so much of what the world thinks is desirable. So let me ask you. Do you ever pump the brakes? Are you ever suspicious of what the world thinks is so desirable? Or are you right there? You may have a fish bumper sticker and a fish ball cap. You may vote conservative. I don't know what you do that you think makes you Christian. But I'm telling you what. Jesus wants you to consider if you are still chasing hard after the same things the world chases after. And you still find the same things they find pitiable to be pitiable. You despise it. Don't want that. You need to question whether you're in the kingdom or not. Kingdom people look and live radically different. Different. Listen, one of the marks of a Christian or a kingdom person is a radical reversal of values. Where you no longer prize and chase after the same things the world chases after. In fact, you prize some of the very things that the world would despise. Ready? Like weakness. Meekness, turning the other cheek, and overcoming evil with, say it, good. You're like, what? Does, everybody, does anybody ever look at you and say, why would you do that? She just, he just, why? Weakness, meekness, turning the other cheek, overcoming evil with good. And Jesus doesn't leave it fuzzy either. He unpacks this some more with some radical upside down values. He says, when you're in the kingdom, you'll embrace the humility of poverty. You'll embrace it. The humility of poverty. Look at the end of verse 20 again. Blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, don't make a mistake here. Because he's not talking about physical or material poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty where you have an awareness, an acute, overwhelming awareness that I don't have what I need. I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to make it on my own in this world. I actually need God. I'm not self-sufficient. You know, the world harps, you know, just turn inside, look inside, go deep. All the answers are there. You can do it. Oprah would tell you, you can do it. You can do it. Believe in yourself. (sighs) Until it just doesn't happen. It happened for her. Yay. It doesn't happen for everybody, Oprah. Believe in yourself. You've reached a point where you recognize I don't have what it takes to do life in this world. I'm not autonomous. I'm not self-sufficient. I actually need God. 
and not just a little need. Desperately, I need to be rescued. I need to be redeemed. In the Sermon on the Mount, he clarifies that he's not talking about economic poverty when he says in Matthew 5, 3, that's the parallel passage, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So, if spiritual poverty is what Jesus is talking about, what level of poverty? How poor do you need to think? How poor do you need to be spiritually? Well, it's helpful to understand and recognize there's two different Greek words for poor that's used in the New Testament. The first one is the word penes. That's a word for poor that describes a working man or woman who has nothing left over at the end of the day. In other words, they're not rich, but they can pay all their bills. They just break even. There's no margin. There's nothing left for nice vacations, eating out. They break even. That's actually a word for poor. Penis. Not the word Jesus uses here in Luke 6 or in Matthew 5. Instead, he uses the word petohas. Petohas. That was a word that describes a condition of absolute, abject poverty. Because the root of the word actually means to crouch or cower because you are forced to kneel and beg because you have nothing. Now, I suspect right now your flesh is recoiling from that very thought. Like, really? I'm not that bad. I'm not poor, yes. Need some help, yes. Abject, absolute poverty, forced to cower and crouch and beg. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom of God. In other words, blessed are those who kneel and beg for God's rescue and redemption because theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, I hope you realize you guys, I don't know if you've been baptized. I don't know if you made a decision. I don't know if you signed a card. I don't know what you think makes you a Christian. But if the starting point of that journey wasn't a point at which you had just become horribly aware of, I cannot save myself. I am a big, big sinner with no hope apart from God and his son, Jesus Christ. Then you just might be religious, but not born again. We've got lots of religion in our world. We had lots of it during the time that Jesus was here. That's not a new thing. People are religious by nature because they're created in the image of God. They know there's got to be something else. But what we resist tenaciously is the concept that we're helpless. We hate that. We hate that. Jesus is saying the very starting point for coming into the kingdom of God is to be so poor in spirit that you recognize, I don't have what it takes to be made right with a holy, holy, holy God. I don't need a system. I don't need boxes to check. I don't need a spiritual trainer to just guide me and get me to go harder. I need a savior to come all the way to me and do for me entirely 
what I could never do for myself. That is the starting point for entry into the kingdom of God. But oh, how this flies in the face of our self-help culture, right? On one of my recent trips, I ran out of books. Every year, I'm like, I'm going to take so many books, I can't run out. But I run out. Whenever I go West Coast, because there's so much time to read. So I had to go to the bookstore. I didn't have to, but it's, you got to read. It's essential to buy some more books. What's the biggest section there? It's humongous. Self-help or self-improvement. You guys, you realize self-help, self-improvement publishing industry now is a 10 billion dollar industry in the United States alone because we are not opposed to some help. Ooh, I get by with a little help from my friends. Ooh, I can try with help. Yes. You know what we're repulsed by? Help less. I'll take some help. Sure. I need some help. Point me in the right direction. Help less. Oh, no, 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 no. That's somebody else you're talking about. That, is not, that does not describe me. Not helpless. So here's why I think Jesus makes this the very starting point for the entry into the kingdom of God. Because so many people, it is our default setting. It is our sinful nature that we're born with to take everything, even Christianity, and try to turn it into a self-help thing. People say, oh, I've hit a rough spot in my life. We're not idiots, right? I'm not getting the kind of fruit I would want from the choices I'm making. This is not good. I've hit a rough spot in my life. Oh, yeah. And so I'm going to try to clean it up. I'm not going to get rid of some of these bad people, make some better friends, rearrange a few things in my life, start going to church, read some books. So that, here's how it sounds, so that I can get my life Back on track. But it's still all about you. And what you are doing, you just decided to try to use Christianity to do it. If that's you, my friend, you're probably still outside of the kingdom, not in it, in it. Because you probably still prize what the world prizes and despise what the world despises. If there's not been, don't hear me saying to a perfect degree, you guys. But if there's not been a radical reversal of values. Yes, we still need money. I still have a house payment. still have a car. It still breaks. But by God's grace, and I hope hundreds of you can say it. I'm not chasing after money. How much can I make? How much can I pile up? What? Because this is not my home. I'm not home. There's been a radical reversal of values, which is why it's freed me up to give radically and sacrificially give away money. That's not normal. That's not normal. The normal thought is, oh, we might need that. We might need that. We might need that. We might need that. Has there been a radical reversal of values to any degree in your life? That's what kingdom people look like. Kingdom people. Oh, but there's more. Jesus says, when you're in the kingdom, you're hungry. You're hungry for more than what this world can offer. 
And this world offers a lot. And they put up neon signs around it and they make it look so wonderful. And they revamp it on a regular basis. It's usually the same thing being displayed and promoted in a new way. Nothing new under the sun. But oh, are you hungry for more than what this world can offer? Look at verse 21. Blessed are you who are, say it, hungry when? Now. Hungry now. Hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. In other words, you recognize something that is backwards, totally backwards from what we all know about how to go to the grocery store, right? Do not go hungry. I've learned this the hard way. I mean, I try to eat lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. I grind kale every day in a ninja. I drink 64 ounces of water. I avoid processed sugar. But if I go to the grocery store hungry, I do stupid things. I buy stupid things. I eat stupid things before I even get to the checkout line. I just send little wrappers along. That was a Twinkie. That was a candy bar. That was a bag of Swedish fish. Original, red only, please. Charge me for all that but it's gone. And I I just unashamedly just, I mean, was cramming it in my mouth in the aisle. People are looking at me, whatever. I'm hungry, hungry. Oh, Jesus, Jesus says in the spiritual realm, you actually want to stay hungry. If you're totally satisfied, slated, your thirst and your appetite is fully quenched by the things of this world, you will not live well. You want to stay hungry, stay hungry for something and someone outside of that hunger should not go away. Stay hungry for something more. He says you will live more fully and fight sin most effectively when you actually stay hungry for something or someone outside of this world. What about you? Do you have any hunger, any hunger for something or someone outside of this world? You better. Because everything inside of this world, I hope you realize, everything inside of this world will fail you at some point. Even good things that God designed and created that are good. Don't hear me saying the, the things are bad. Friendship's not bad. Sexual pleasure's not bad. Work is not bad. On and on we could go, but none of it was designed to bear the full weight of your deepest longings and hunger. None of it. Everything in this world will fail you at some point because none of it was ever designed to fully satisfy you. That's what C.S. Lewis was talking about at the end of his great chapter on hope in his book, Mere Christianity. If you're here and you're not a Christian, so glad that you would attend. Or online, if you're listening and you're not a believer yet, let me encourage you, read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. This is not a man who quickly and easily chose Christianity. He resisted. He wrestled. He was an atheist. Excellent book. But in his chapter on hope, he, he bumps right up against this. He talks about reorienting the focus of your life, the entire focus of your life, away from this world 
and back towards God. You're created in the image of God with desires and appetites that cannot be satisfied here and now. And he says this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world, boyfriend, girlfriend, marriage, kids, grandkids, work, achievement, accolades, image, travel. If I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world fully satisfies, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another Oh, if you could get a hold of that, you could just let up on some of your expectations. This was not designed to ever fully satisfy. You're made for another world. Yes, you were. And the sooner you settle into that and embrace that, the sooner you'll experience real peace and joy in this world. Because you can stop expecting it. And often what happens is we expect those around us, our friends, our spouses, our kids to do for us what they cannot do. The sooner you settle into this and embrace it, the sooner you'll have real peace and joy because you can stop expecting this world to do for you what it was never created to do. Let me show you something else that's upside down. For kingdom people, for kingdom people, your joys are never far from sorrow. Like, okay, that's weird, Brad. Do I want that? Look at verse 21. Blessed are you who weep when? Say it louder. Now, you weep now. For you shall laugh. What is Jesus talking about? Here's what I think he's talking about. Everyone, this might sound weird at first, but stay with me. Everyone in the kingdom of God weeps more than the rest of the world. Here's why. Because you are grieved over your own sin. It's not like, whatever. When you truly know him. You're horrified by the sin that yet remains, by the very things sometimes you say and think and do. It's not like whatever. You're grieved over the sins of others and how it impacts them and those around them. You're grieved about lost people that are so confused. And you're grieved by people that are suffering in a fallen, broken world. You actually care in a way that our world just does not. Apart from new birth, apart from being in the kingdom, it's like, I got enough trouble of my own. I can't take on your troubles. As believers, not perfectly, not perfectly. But oh my goodness, I am so regularly encouraged. Our world and the media loves to act like Christians are just nothing but a bunch of stupid haters. That is not true. If our world experienced one day where... Just take every believer out of the world and take out of the world everything that believers created and started and are sustaining. Our world would be shocked by the level of compassion and care that was sucked out of this world. We're not perfect, you guys, but there is this ability and it's in you that you don't just care about you. It's not just like I'm looking out for me and nobody else. You actually care 
for others, stay with me, and step in to carry the burdens of others and not just your own. Therefore, you weep more, not less. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. These two things are bumped together. Yes, we've got a joy, but we're regularly sorrowful because I'm regularly trying to help someone with a bad marriage, help someone with addictions, reach out to my neighbor who's struggling, reach out to my neighbor whose husband just died suddenly of cancer. Just, you care. We're not just staying to ourselves. We're like, oh, 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 oh. Here's the deal. And I don't even have the gift of mercy. The older I get, I just had another birthday last week. The older I get, the more quickly and easily I cry. cry. The kids are always like, what is wrong with you? You're crying again. Yes, as you age, you will too. Not because I'm losing my mind, because I care more than you do. I care. I've lived through some of that. I've walked with someone with that. And when I learn of it again, it grieves me. It breaks my heart. And we're involved trying to help with some of these people. I'm not talking about just full-time pastors. You're doing it. I know you are. You end up with your shoulder under the burden of not just your own stuff, but other people's stuff. And you don't just weep over your own kids and your own job. You weep over situations of others. Blessed are those who weep. When? Now. This world is broken. If you're not weeping, you're not paying attention. Here's what starts to happen, but it shouldn't happen to kingdom people. As the news just inundates us with bad, 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 you can just become numb. Want to know how not to? Spend time with Jesus. And as his heart continues to become your heart, one of the main things that you'll see as we go through the gospel is that Jesus would look out on a crowd and not say, you disgust me. He was moved with, say it, compassion. For they were like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion. If your number one emotion towards transgender people or same-sex attracted or whatever is anger and disgust, I have great concerns for you. If you're in the kingdom, you, you feel for them. They're confused. They've been lied to. The world has taken them down a horrible path. You're moved with compassion, not hate. You weep. When you have the heart of Jesus and you've been drawn into his kingdom. Blessed are those who weep now. We don't spend our days just ha, 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 just trite. We care. We're aware and we care and we carry some of the burden of some of these other people. We don't just watch it happen. We get involved in some of the messes. I'm regularly so proud of you guys. Just the things I'll bump into, emails I'll receive, things I'll learn that I didn't even know about. And I learned that was someone in our church family that did that for them. I made a phone call the other day to an attorney trying to sort out something with Vicky's family in a state because her mom died and her dad died last year. And we were stuck. And even in the conversation, some woman shared with me something I had no idea about of what this person had done for her when she was at the lowest point going through a divorce. That was someone in our church family. She was amazed at how this person sought her out and reached out to her and did not condemn her, but loved her. That's what kingdom people are doing. They care, they care, and they carry some of the messes and burdens of others. 
Finally, when you're in his kingdom, you're not surprised by the exclusion and hate you face. If you are surprised by being marginalized, excluded, and hated, it's your own fault. You're not reading the Bible. The Bible just brings this repeatedly. Don't be surprised by exclusion and hate, being excluded and hated. He just tells us relentlessly. Look at verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Notice a key word that's used two times there. When, not if, when. When they hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they call you evil. I know it's hard, but you got to get over this thought. What am I doing wrong? But there's got to be something I could adjust and this shouldn't happen. Don't they see I'm actually a loving person and I care? It just can be helpful if you know. Get used to being misrepresented, slandered, misunderstood, excluded, and hated. Don't, don't go out of your way to get it. But when you're doing what you think is actually loving and compassionate, like I was on just a minute ago, you will have some that will hate you, still call you evil, still judge your motives, still twist take fragments of what you actually said and use it. I'll never forget the first time this happened to me. I was like, some guy showed up and he was from LA, Los Angeles, some newspaper there. He's got his little official news thing hanging around his neck. He's like, I'd love to talk to you after the service and interview you, silly me. I'm like, great. After three services, I was exhausted. I still sat in my office with him for another hour and a half. I thought we were connecting. I thought he, I thought we were friends. And then, I didn't do it, but one of my kids Googled Brad Bigney and found him. He'd made a video and he was making fun of me. You know, when I meet someone and i on a plane or whatever, then I write them down in my prayer journal and I pray for them and I send them cards. So I had sent him a card and he was waving it around, mocking me and saying, this is how you do it. Make inroads in with believers. Pretend you're their friend, blah, 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 blah. I had to get my daughter to just settle down. I mean, she was going to fly out there and just take him to task. I was like, please, please don't do that. And it did hurt. But it's what Jesus is talking about. They're going to exclude you. They're going to misrepresent you. They're going to slander you. They're going to, don't be surprised. We got a world of hate going on right now. In our world, in our nation. Just make sure if you're drawing the heat of hate, that you're drawing it for the right reasons. That you remind them so much of Jesus. There's all kinds of reasons to be hated right now. Let's make it the right ones. That you remind them so much of Jesus. So here's what you got to understand. The more your life looks and lives like Jesus... the more you will both attract and repel people. You say, how can that be? It just is because it's what he experienced, right? He was the most controversial and compelling person. What you don't want is just lukewarm in the middle. That shouldn't be happening. People either loved him and left everything to follow him or wanted to kill him. That's kind of weird. That's our leader, right? They either loved him and were willing to sacrifice everything to follow him or wanted to kill him. The more you look and live like Jesus, 
you will both attract some people and repel some others. In other words, your life should either, your life should either get a reaction or be an attraction. But it should not just elicit a yawn from the people around you. The life of Jesus never elicited a yawn. He was the most compelling and controversial figure in all of history. And now we say we follow him. If you really do follow him, you should be getting a reaction from some and attraction from others. So what about you? What about you today? Number three, how do you know which kingdom you're in? How do you know which kingdom you're in? Well, one of the ways you can tell, here's a great litmus test. One of the ways you can tell which kingdom you're in is how you respond when some of the things the world prizes most are shaken or taken from you. How do you respond? How do you respond when some of the things the world prizes most are shaken or taken from you? In other words, if you're driven, whether you'd say it out loud or not, but if someone watched your life, it'd become obvious. If you are driven by nothing but the power and pleasure of right here, right now, then you're going to be filled with fears and insecurities. You'll be easily threatened and given over to panic whenever something this world prizes is shaken or taken from you. Think about it. If you build your life on beauty, image, athletic prowess, it's going to fade. It's going to fade. No matter what you do, oil of Olay all day, it's still going to fade. Still going to fade. You you can pay thousands of dollars for a facelift just to look odd like you're smiling constantly. That's weird. It's like someone pinned some things back on your ears. Like, all right. And you always tell by the hands. I look at the hands like, okay, those hands are 70. The face is not. It's going to fade no matter what you do. It's going to fade. If you build your life on people, people, they're going to fail you and even die. And if you build your life on achievement and power, your achievement, whatever you think it is, like it'll be a while before that gets topped. You'll be surprised. Your achievement will be eclipsed and your weakness will be exposed far sooner than you ever thought possible. These are not the things to build your life on. Enjoy them. Don't hear me saying, be a loser for Jesus. Accomplish nothing and be as ugly as possible. No. I go to the gym. I drink water. But it's a new normal, what I can do at the gym. Don't build your life. I enjoy friends. I love Vicky dearly. Don't build your life on people, image, achievement, prowess, anything in this world. Because if you do, if you try to fill your life with the things of this world, you will end up with cosmic emptiness and grief 
Because the things of this world can be so easily shaken and taken. We've got people right now, epidemic proportions on anxiety meds. Because more and more and more, I get it. This is a scary world. I feel bad for the younger generation growing up. You don't just get out of college and get a job. You get out of college and still can't find a job. This is a much harder, scarier world. So many of these young people, they already lived through a divorce. They're scared of marrying. They're scared of jobs. They're scared of so much. And I get it. It is a scary, unsettling, insecure world. But the answer is not more and more and more meds. The answer is Jesus. Don't hear me saying if you know Jesus, it's a sin to be on a med. Just hear me saying the meds alone will never get it done. Then you'll deal with a side effect. Then I need more of this. Then I take this because this is doing such and such. If your heart could change. And you're like, oh, I'm being satisfied in a place with a person who's outside of this world in a way that it allows me to let up on what I think I need from this world. It's a game changer. Game changer. The things of this world can be so easily shaken and taken from you. On my trip recently to teach one weekend in Virginia, I'm sitting on the plane. I've got a mask. You know, it's a new day. Mask. And they say it over and over. Over your nose. Over your mouth. We will remind you if you forget. Yes, I know. So I'm sitting there. And now Delta leaves a seat in between you and that next person. I'm deaf in my right ear. This has been a horrible season for me, you guys. Trust me. I'm obeying, but I read lips. I look at mouths. Mouths are gone. For a year, mouths have been gone. And Vicky says to me, what did she say? I don't know. I was just smiling. She could be saying, you're an idiot. Thank you. (laughs) I've just spent a year smiling and nodding, bobbing my little head. I have no idea what people are saying because I can't see your mouth. So I'm sitting there and for the first time, I haven't tried to share the gospel all during COVID because I'm like, this can't possibly go well. I can't hear. I'm seated here. This young lady arrives and she's a seat away and she's to my right. That's not good news. This is deaf. But she seemed unsettled frazzled, frantic. It's like the Holy Spirit's like, let's do this. I'm like, oh, oh. But then here's the deal now. You got 30 seconds to make a decision because she pulls out this little white thing that I used to think was dental floss, but it's got some Apple ear pods in it. The cap opens up and she's starting to pull out earbuds. She's not gonna floss. She's gonna put these in her ears and then we're done. You got 30 seconds to decide, we gonna talk or not? So I was like, all right, Lord, here we go. And I tell you this all the time, you guys. It's not that hard. You ask questions. I just said, is Atlanta your home? That's where we were flying first. She's like, no. And I just start asking questions. What do you do? She's, she's a medical professional. She's, she's doing really well. And she'd been training and da-da-da-da-da. I'm just asking questions. But at some point, then I shared with her about Vicky's health crisis in 2017 where she lost movement of her arms and legs And I moved on. And she actually said, ooh, I would love to hear more about your wife's health condition. I start to explain to her that it's called transverse myelitis. And and she jumps ahead of me and says, yes, a virus eats a hole in the lining around your spinal cord called the myelin sheath. Not everybody knows that. I'd never heard of that before it happened to Vicky. I said, how do you know that? Turns out this healthy-looking, beautiful, 27-year-old young lady just suffered 11 strokes six months ago. 
And some of her symptoms are the same symptoms of, with Vicky, neuropathy, where your appendages just tingle like needles, like you're being stabbed all over. It's miserable. And she's on one of the same medications as Vicky. And so we're talking and I'm asking questions. She said she woke up in a hospital room with 19 doctors and surgeons gathered in her room, all trying to figure out why this happened. And they don't know. They don't know why this happened. She's on 28 medications now and they've given her four years to live because they don't know why it happened. They did put two stents in one carotid artery. She said the other one was just shredded. She said, I'm a ticking time bomb. She said she had to give up. Here's my point. She had to give up almost all the things she loves the most. Gave away all her snowboarding equipment. She cannot be active, right? She can't do anything active. And so it seemed like a good time to say, I prayed, do you have any thoughts about death or God? And she said, well, I grew up Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic high school, but I never understood any of it. It didn't make sense. And then she just said, I just hope God is peaceful. So I began to share the gospel. I said, denominational labels don't matter. It doesn't matter what the name of the church is. It's all about Jesus who was God and took on flesh for us and came into this world. And he's the only one that ever kept perfectly the Ten Commandments. And then he died for us, not for his own sins, but our sins were on him. He paid the price so that now anyone who puts their trust in him can be made right with God and forgiven and have peace with God. And then I went on to say, we're created in the image of God, men and women, which is why no amount of money and multiple homes will satisfy the longing we have for something more. And she readily agreed. You're right. You're right. It was only an hour flight. So at this point we had landed. I'm stepping into the aisle. I'm pulling down my overhead, carry on. And I was so glad. I had recently put three of my favorite gospel tracks in there because my favorite had gotten outdated. It showed people from the 70s with bad sweaters. I was like, (laughs) they've got to update this. And thank you, Linda Mark Sperry, who runs our resource center. She'd gotten the new ones, no bad sweaters. And I pulled one out of my bag. It's called Ultimate Questions. You want to give someone something good, ultimate questions. And I said, I would love to give this to you. I think it's my favorite explanation of how you can know that you're right with God through his son, Jesus Christ. She didn't say, I don't think, maybe she said, please stop. And I didn't hear her. (laughs) She said, she said, thank you. I'm going to read this on my next flight. I told her, I don't think it's an accident that we're seated next to each other. I always pray that God will put me by who he wants me to talk to. Guys, this is not how God rolls with pastors only. Don't try this on your own. God would love to do this through all believers in your neighborhood, at the gym, at work. You have no idea what people are going through. I could have looked at her and thought, she's young, she's beautiful, she's not going to be interested. Would have been a bad decision, wouldn't it? The things that we our world prizes the most can be shaken and taken. That's what she had just faced. It could happen to you also sooner than you think, much sooner than you think. Oh, if you're here and you're not a believer or you're watching and you're not a believer, thank you, thank you for taking the time to listen today. 
But I would say to you, oh, put your trust in Jesus, the one who did for you what you could never do for yourself. Because nothing in this world can solve your biggest problem. Biggest problem is not cancer. Biggest problem is not a job issue. Biggest problem is not a best friend issue. The biggest problem you face is the sin problem between you and God. Nothing in this world can solve that. And nothing in this world will satisfy the deep hunger that you have. You are actually hungry for something more, more. And Christians, oh, listen to me. It's been a rough year, 2020, I know. You feel excluded, you feel alienated, and more and more and more we feel alienated and excluded with dark, so much darkness around us. Don't get hateful. Stay hungry and hopeful because of who you are and where you are headed. You are not home yet. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you have not been limited by 2020. Nothing any government has decreed or done has limited you building your kingdom, drawing people into the kingdom, taking out hearts of stone, putting in hearts of flesh, opening blind eyes, unstopping deaf ears. God, thank you that you are on the move and we get to be your people for such a time as this. Use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name.